Amen. Go ahead and take your seats. Good morning, church. I'm Pastor Brian, your discipleship and outreach pastor here at Faith Church. And this morning, it's a great privilege and a pleasure to open up God's Word with you. And we're going to continue our series in the book of Hebrews. And uh, this morning, we're going to be in chapter 4. And we're going to be looking at chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. And what we're going to see in those verses is we're going to see a lot about rest about rest. Doesn't that sound good? Anybody ever need some rest? You ever need a break? Maybe after a, a hard day or a long week? Maybe a particularly difficult season? Maybe a pandemic? And something that would just really cause us to, I could really use a break. I could really use a rest. Maybe something that, maybe you're exhausted physically. It might be emotionally or spiritually. I know for me, there's plenty of times in my life where I've been exhausted, and my wife can tell you about times where I've fallen asleep at the dinner table, and I'm sure many of you can re relate to just needing some rest. And a lot of times what we do is we, when we need a rest, we go seek out some thing or some place. So we go to the beach or we go to a cabin in the woods or we go on a cruise or something like that, which sounds great, but I think we all know that the rest or the break that we get from those things is only temporary. It's only partial. Maybe we think that, well, I can't wait to retire because in retirement, that's when I get that permanent rest, right? Yeah. People are laughing. Most retired people I know are busier than they were when they worked. So then how do we find a more permanent and ultimate rest? Because you're not going to find it in a plot of land or at the beach, or in an RV camper, or at a cabin in the woods. Our ultimate rest is found in God. And it's found with God. And we don't enter that rest with lots of money, or lots of airline miles, or lots of vacation time. We enter that rest with lots of faith. Faith in who God is, and faith in the trustworthiness of what He says. And so this morning, as we dive into chapter 4, we're going to learn about a greater rest. Really, we're going to learn about the greatest rest. And the main idea that we're going to see in the text is that those who have faith in God's promises will enter and experience His rest. That when we have faith in God's promises, we will enter and experience His rest. So if you've got your Bible, you can open up to Hebrews chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 1 through 13, and then I'll pray. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in the passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, 
saying through David so long afterwards in the, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And that's the word of God for us this morning. Let me pray. Father, we are grateful to be here this morning, to, to gather together, to worship you, to sing praises to your name, and to sit under your word. And God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what we've just read here. We thank you for the promise of rest that we're going to learn about this morning. Pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we would listen to what you have for us. And God, we would be foolish not to pray that your word would do exactly what it says, that your living and active word would pierce our soul and our spirit and our joints and our marrows and that it would judge the thoughts and intentions of our heart. God, we pray that your word would have its way with us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so what a, what a great word we have here uh, this morning. And what, what you, you can actually approach the, this, this text in a number of ways, some different ways to kind of break this down. But I think for me, uh, there's a clear uh, a, a split of three sections here we're going to look at. And they're marked off by therefore. Right, so you'll see, therefore, let us fear. Therefore, he appoints a certain day today. Therefore, let us strive. And so we're going to start with that first one. In verses 1 through 5, we see that we are to fear the failure of entering God's promised rest. We should fear failing to enter that promised rest. Now, I would normally not want to use a negative statement for a sermon point, like let us fear or fear failure, but we can't escape the fact that that's exactly what the text says. It tells us, let us fear. And we're going to talk about that in a second, about fear. But before we do that, I actually want to talk a little bit about this promise, right? That the, the promise of entering his rest still stands. And I think it's important for us to understand what they're talking about here, what the promise is, because as we understand the context and the background of this passage, it'll help us understand the rest of the text. And I know we talked about it a little bit uh, last week, or M Mike did when he was in Hebrews 3. But the context is the promise of rest that God gave the Israelites when they were in the wilderness. So all the way back in Genesis chapter 15, God actually told Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to give your descendants this land. And so then we find uh, many years later, we find the Israelites on the outskirts of that land. They're getting ready to go into that land. And this is story is in Numbers 13 and 14. Numbers chapter 13 and chapter 14. You don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read from there a little bit. 
And what happens is when they're about to enter the land, God tells them through Moses, go send some spies to check out the land. And so they send some spies to go check out that land. This is the land that God had already promised them. God said, I'm going to give you this land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. They probably had visions of a new garden of Eden. And they go look at that land. And what do they see? They see the enemy. They see fortresses. And they become scared. And they're overwhelmed by what they see. Here's the report that they give back to the Israelites. Looking at verses 28, and then I'll read verse 31. This is what they said, the spies said about what they saw. Those who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. And then later they say, we are, not, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. They're not wrong, but obviously they're focused on we. They, they said it's, it's never going to happen. We'll never be able to take that land. We can't do it. See, they feared the circumstances in front of them. They feared a worldly enemy. They feared the people and things of this world. And they knew that they couldn't do it. But there were two spies, Joshua and Caleb, names that you've probably heard. They had a different response. This is their response, verses 8 and 9 of chapter 14. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that does flow with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred to us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. So Joshua and Caleb, they faced the same circumstances and the same enemy, yet they came to a completely different conclusion. How is that? It's because they remembered and trusted God's promise. They remembered and trusted that God had promised to give them that land and to deliver the enemy into their hands. They feared God more than man. They trusted God's promise more than they feared their circumstances. And here's a reminder for those of you who are familiar with the story, or a spoiler alert if you're not, who entered the land. Only Joshua and Caleb. Now, the sons of the other Israelites did, but those who did not believe in God's promise, those who rejected God's promise, did not enter the promised land. And that's what gives us the context for moving into this imperative where we are told to fear, lest we fail to enter God's rest. We are told to be afraid of missing out on God's promise for us. And I know that a lot of times when we hear the word fear, we read the word fear in the Bible, sometimes we, we sort of tap dance around it or we don't know how to explain it. Maybe not when it comes to unbelievers, because we know that people who don't believe in God should fear the wrath of God or fear the judgment of God. But when we think about God being loving and gracious and merciful, we sometimes have a hard time understanding why should we be afraid of that. So I looked it up. I wanted to know what is the, what's the actual Greek word? What does the Greek mean for fear or to be afraid? So I looked it up, and you know what it means in the Greek? It means fear. It means be afraid. It's exactly what it means. It's translated exactly as it should be. And in this text, what we're told to be afraid of is missing out on his rest. 
Have you ever had a hard time? I know your kids probably do, or maybe when you were a kid, but you ever have a hard time sleeping at night when something really exciting is going on the next day, particularly if it's in the morning, where you just can't rest, right? You think about little kids that there's something really fun going on tomorrow, and I don't want to fall asleep because I'm afraid I'm going to miss out. My alarm might not go off, or I might sleep in, and I'm going to miss out on this good thing. Well, we should be afraid of missing out on something good that God has for us. Something good that God has promised us. So how is it that we would miss out on that? What is it that we are to fear? What are we to look out for? What, what, what is the trap that we should fear falling into? Well, the author tells us, he continues to talk about the Israelites, and he said the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. They heard, but it didn't benefit because they had no faith like the ones who listened. There's a difference between hearing God and listening to God. Right, my kids hear me. When I yell at my kids, they can hear me. That doesn't mean they listen to me. But just because you have heard the message doesn't mean that you have believed the message. Just because you've heard the gospel doesn't mean that you believe the gospel. Just because you have heard or read God's promises in, in his word doesn't mean, mean that you have believed or trusted those promises. The Israelites knew God's promise. They saw and experienced the miracles. They ate the manna that came from heaven. They drank the water that came from a rock. They walked through a sea that had been parted. But then they saw this opposition and these circumstances and they were scared. They didn't trust that God would do what he had said. One of my favorite verses is Numbers 23, 19. You guys could write that down. It's a great verse. Obviously, they didn't have Numbers 23, 19 because this story took place in Numbers 13 and 14. But the nature and the character of God is no different. And what we learn in Numbers 23 is it says that God is not a man that he would lie nor is he a son of man that he would change his mind. And then it says, does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? Does God not fulfill his promises? But they didn't trust that God would do what he had said. And we are told in this text, don't be like them. It doesn't matter what you've heard. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you call yourself. What matters is what you believe. It says in the beginning of verse 3 that we who have believed enter that rest. Israelites heard God's word. They just didn't believe it. They called themselves God's people. They were around other Israelites. They saw the miracles, but they didn't believe God for his word. And we must be warned about falling into the same trap. You might think that because you go to church that you're good with God. You might think that because you've read those promises in the Bible that you're automatically going to inherit those things. You might think that because you come from or that you're in a Christian family that you are part of the church. Sometimes in the military, we call that a dog tag Christian. I don't know if you've heard that term before, but, you know, on our dog tags, we've got to put a religious affiliation, and a lot of people uh, will just put Protestant or Christian or something like that on there, just pretty kind of generically. But there's sort of this thing that, oh, well, if I die in combat or something, I'll be good. It doesn't matter what you put on your dog tag. 
It doesn't matter if you go to church. It doesn't matter if you read the Bible. It doesn't matter if you're part of a Christian family if you don't believe. If it's not coupled with faith, then you will not enter God's rest. Don't be like the Israelites. Don't be like the Israelites. Be like Caleb and Joshua who trusted God's promise. Be like Abraham who believed God's promise. Romans 4.20 is a great verse where Paul writes, he's writing about Abraham. And he says that Abraham did not waver through unbelief regarding God's promises. It says but that Abraham was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. Why? Verse 21 says he was fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he promised. So Abraham gave glory to God because he knew that God would do what he promised. And the promise that we're looking at here in this text is the promise of rest. What is that rest anyways? What is the rest? We've established the danger of failing to enter it or missing out on that rest. We've talked a little bit about what it takes to enter the rest, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But what is this rest? And what's fascinating is if you look at particularly 3 through 5 and verse 4, that the author goes all the way back to creation to talk about this rest. He says, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. He has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. God rested on the seventh day from his works. And again in the passage, he says, they shall not enter my rest. He connects this rest with God. God says it's my rest. It's his rest. And it began all the way back on the seventh day. See, the promised land was just a small little earthly taste of rest. The same thing is true of the Sabbath day, right? We don't obey the Sabbath day because, because we have to obey some law. We don't, it's not some selfish way of us to have a day off or so that we can watch football. It's about resting in God and remembering and worshiping him for an even greater promise of greater rest. The promised land, like the Sabbath day, they're just placeholders. They're a type of rest that serve to point us to a greater rest. A rest that is with God, our creator. He's resting and we rest, we get to rest with him one day. It's a rest that he established on the seventh day of creation. It's been available since the beginning and it'll be available until the end because God is eternal. His rest is eternal. And the ultimate goal and the purpose of the rest that God has for us, it's not physical or earthly. The rest that we really need is rest with him. And we can rest with God because he himself rested. Now, don't get me wrong. God didn't rest on the seventh day because he was so exhausted. Oh, man, this creation stuff is just too hard for me. I need a break. Right? He rested because the work of creation. He rested because he was done. You see that in verse 10. And to be clear, God resting doesn't mean that right now God is kicking back at the pool with the margarita, doing nothing. Okay, God is active. God is still sovereign over and active in all of his creation. John, uh, in John 5, 17, Jesus says, My Father is working until now, and I am working. 
Okay, so Jesus is not doing nothing, or God's not doing nothing. In fact, the irony of that verse is that that's what Jesus said when the Jews were mad at him for healing on the Sabbath day. The point the author is making here is that God established true and eternal rest back on the seventh day. And that's the beauty of God's rest. The beauty of God's rest is that it's not limited. It's not limited to a plot of land or to a day of the week. God's rest is eternal, which means that it is still available. And that's what the author emphasizes in the next section, in verses 6 through 10. He emphasizes that God's rest is still available today. The timing of God's rest is perfect. And we should rejoice in that. We can rejoice in the timing of God's promised rest. And we rejoice in that for two reasons, probably many more. But first, we rejoice because it's not too late. It's not too late. Therefore, it remains for some to enter. Now, what he says in verse 6 is he's just summarizing what he's already told us. Right? Some can still enter it, and those who formerly received it did not enter it. And he says, since those things are true, he appoints a certain day today. We read about this last week. This comes from Psalm 95. Right? Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. And the timeline here, David's writing this probably a thousand years after Israel had even entered the promised land. Yet that promise... From the promise from the Israel, to the Israelites, from back in Numbers, that promise was still available to David and his people. It was still available to the audience of the book of Hebrews, and it is still available to you and I. So we rejoice. We rejoice that it's not too late for us to become heirs of God's rest. But on the other hand, there's a sense of urgency to that. The word today. Today is the day for you to believe in the promise of God. Today is the day to believe in that promise of rest. Today is the day. And the most important thing about today, the most important promise that you can believe today is that promise of rest. It's the promise that gives you the guarantee of ultimate rest with God in heaven forever. It's the promise that we only get to that permanent rest through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's the truth now. That's the promise for us, is that we still need to believe the promise in order to enter his rest. But the promised land for us is heaven, and we get there through the person and work of Jesus. Matthew 11, in Matthew 11, Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He didn't say, if you, if you labor and are heavy laden, go on vacation. He said, come to me. He said, have faith in me and I will give you rest. John 14, 6, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If we want to get to God, if we want to get to that rest that he has for us, we have to go through his Son. This is the promise that we must believe if we want to enter God's ultimate rest. God promised the Israelites that he would deliver the, the, uh, their enemies into their hands so that they could enter the land. But for us, 
God's already defeated the enemy through the death and resurrection of Jesus so that we can enter the promised land, which is heaven for us. They needed to believe that he would fulfill his promise to them. We need to believe that he has fulfilled his promise. And the reason we do that today is because, first of all, we are not guaranteed tomorrow. So if you want to be guaranteed that you will enter God's rest, the guarantee that you can get to heaven, today's the day. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. But second, second of all, I think it's important for us to understand the urgency because even though the complete and ultimate fulfillment of that promise of rest comes in heaven, there's still great blessing for us when we rest in God even now. When we place our faith and trust in God's promises and we rest in him. Let's look at verses 9 and 10. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So we will, in fact, rest from all of our works. When we believe in Jesus as our Savior, when we have faith in the finished work of Christ, then we know, we know that one day we will rest from all of our works, from all of our toils and troubles, from, from this wilderness journey, if you will, that we are on in this world. One day we will experience the promise of Isaiah 11, where, right, where the animals are with the children. We'll experience the promise of a new heaven and a new earth. We see in Revelation 21, where God will dwell with man. There'll be no more crying or mourning or pain. And we look forward to that day. I know I look forward to that day when we can rest from all of this nonsense of this world. But second, we also understand that our rest in God can even begin now or have some benefits for the here and now. Maybe not fully, because as long as we're living in a fallen and sinful world, we're always going to long for that greater rest. But we can begin to have this, this internal rest, this spiritual rest that we can have even now. We can rest from our efforts to save ourselves. We can rest from our efforts of salvation. We can rest in the assurance that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. And we can work towards serving God rather than trying to earn his favor. We can rest from our fear of death or persecution because we know our eternal destiny. When we're faced with difficult circumstances or trials, we can rest in the confidence that God is on the throne and that he's working all things for our ultimate good and his ultimate glory. The promise of eternal rest should lead us to an internal rest and a, a, a spiritual rest that only someone who is confident in God's promise of heaven can have. Only when you know where you're going, only when you have that confidence can you have that sort of rest and peace on earth. This is how Christians can rest easy in a crazy and chaotic and sinful world. This is how someone with cancer or terminal illness can sleep at night. This is how believers in India or China or Afghanistan can face persecution head on. This is how people face death with peace and die well. Because they trust that God is faithful in his promise to give them rest. And how do we know that God offers rest? How do we know that Jesus is the way to rest? 
How do we know that God is on the throne? How do we know that he's working for our good and for his glory? Because those are the promises that God gives us. Those are the promises that we find in his word. So as you can see, if we want to be people that have that assurance of eternal rest and also who find spiritual rest in this life, we need to be people who love and embrace the promises of God's word. First and foremost, that promise of salvation. But we should also strive to know and trust all of God's promises. Verse 11 tells us that we should strive to enter the rest. We should strive to enter that rest. And since we know that entering the rest is based on trusting the promise, then that means that the striving is that we strive to trust the promise. We strive to trust God's word. And in this third section, verses 11 through 13, what we see is that we must strive to trust in the promises of God's word. We should strive to trust the promises of God's word. Another word for strive is diligent. That is, there's diligence. We need to be diligent in trusting God's promises. So what does that look like? Diligence or striving for rest? Doesn't that seem kind of weird? I have to work for rest? Well, I mean, we all work and then rest, don't we? But what does that look like? How do we strive for? How do we work for rest? First of all, we stop trying to do it on our own. And I know that's kind of weird. That's like we strive by stop. We, we strive by not striving. But we stop trying to earn our own salvation. We stop trying to work to make God happy. We stop relying on those things, those wrong things, to save us. And instead, we allow Christ to work in us. In Colossians 1, Paul says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. So we strive by allowing God to work in us rather than trying to do it on our own. We stop trying to, to earn his rest or justify ourselves by those other things, by going to church or reading the Bible or whatever it might be. Those are all good things. But we stop trying to do that so well or so much that we can earn this rest. And then second, we strive to become familiar with and so trusting of God's promises that we trust them over our own feelings or circumstances. That we want to become, we strive to become people who know God's word so well and we trust God and his promises so well that we know them and we trust them even better than our own feelings or circumstances. We strive to give God's word greater prominence than our own fears. And I know that's hard to do. You've got to trust in God's word. If you're not in God's word, if you don't know God's word, you're certainly not going to be able to hold on to those promises when you face those times in life. And God's word is not limited to this one, albeit very important, promise of rest. There's tons of promises throughout God's word that are meant to encourage us or to strengthen us or to challenge us to live for him. Promises that, that help us find a new and better identity in Christ even now. 
So we must become familiar with the promises and even the warnings of God's word. We must become men and women of the word. And we do so. We want to be people of his word because God's word and God's promises are just as powerful and just as active today as they were for Abraham, as they were for Moses, for Joshua and Caleb, or for David, or for the disciples, or for the audience of this book of Hebrews. And that is where we find ourselves when we come to verse 12. Hebrews 4.12 is one of my favorite passages in all the scripture, and for many of you it may be the same. It's a, it, it's a famous, it's a popular verse, because it's, and rightfully so, it's one of the best descriptions of God's word that you'll find in his word. This is what God's word says about itself. It says that the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joint and marrow, and it discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Many have heard this passage, but we don't often understand the context from which it comes. And here we see, here we've been looking at the context. So what we know is that God is warning his people. God is warning us. He's warning you, he's warning me to take his promises seriously. To take him at his word. And if we don't, we're in danger of missing out on what he has for us. Like his rest. Whether that's the permanent rest that comes with salvation and when we get to heaven, or whether that's the blessing of resting in him now, we have been warned that his promises are not to be taken lightly. When we don't take him at his word, there's consequences. And so he tells us, God tells us that his word is living and active. His word is not ancient. His word continues to work. It's just as powerful today. It's not just the promise of rest that remains, but the entirety of God's word is still living and active because it was inspired by the Spirit. Second Peter 1 tells us that no scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. And that spirit that inspired the word of God is the same spirit today as it was yesterday. It's the same spirit that we have that helps us to understand the word of God. Not to mention God's word reveals God to us. People say they want to know God or they want to know about God or what God has to say. We can't separate the person of God from the word of God. The Word of God isn't some third-person biography that somebody wrote after he died. This is the living God who wrote his own story for his own people, revealing himself to us. And that Word is sharper than a two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit and joint and marrow, and it discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Bible is the sword of the Spirit, is what it's called in Ephesians 6. It's not an earthly weapon, it's a spiritual weapon, but it has much greater impact than any worldly weapon ever could. 
Worldly weapons can kill the body, but they can't kill the soul. Worldly weapons can protect your body, but they can't protect your soul. The Word of God will cut through the layers, the, the outer layers and the defenses of man and get to the heart. It's the surgeon's knife in the hands of the great physician. I love stories about people whose lives have been changed by God's Word. There's a couple of them here. If you've heard of John Newton, he wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. And I was reading a little about his story, and he, he, he learned a bunch of Bible verses as a child, but he never really believed. And he, so he grew up, and he lived a sinful life. And many of you know he was part, he was actually a slave trader. And he went to escape that, and he got on a ship, and he was out in the ocean. And that ship was in a storm, and it started to sink. And he was down in the pump room, and as he was down there thinking that this ship was going to sink... He started remembering all these verses that he had learned as a child. And as, he was, as those were coming to his mind, they convicted his heart. He repented of his sin and he believed in the promises from those verses. It's another story of a guy named Dawson Trotman. He's the founder of the Navigators Organization, if you're familiar with them. And he, uh, his story is a little more lighthearted, but it's still great. Um, he, he met a girl that he wanted to impress, right? So he had just graduated from high school, um, and this girl was part of a group. It was a Christian group. He didn't know that until he got there. And they were having a competition to memorize Bible verses. And he thought, well, if I memorize the most Bible verses, I'll impress this girl. So he started memorizing all these verses, but he wasn't a believer. And one day as he's walking to work, what he says in, in his biography that I read so he just fell on his face and began to weep because as he was just quoting those verses in his head, he began to understand what they meant. And God began to convict him of his sin. And those are great stories, but I think the, the greatest story of God changing someone's life or affecting someone's life by the word of God is your story. It's my story. God's word is living and active for every one of us. And it might be to varying degrees and we have different ways that God's word has impacted us or different places that we're at in our walk with God, but God's word is doing its work. It's impacting your life. It will affect you. When God wields his sword, you cannot escape it. You can pretend it doesn't exist. You can pretend that it's not sharp, but it's going to cut. It's going to cut. And you will live by that sword or you will die by that sword. It means you will live forever and enter God's perfect rest one day because you trusted the promises of God that came from that sword, from the word of God. Or you'll miss out on that rest and find yourself on the wrong end of that sword. There's a reason why God's word is referred to as a sword here. Also in Ephesians 6. And we see it again in Revelation 19. When Jesus comes back, we, we get this picture in Revelation 19. It's one of the greatest chapters in the Bible. Jesus is coming back. He's on the white horse. Part of the description is that from his mouth comes a sharp sword. From his mouth, the word of God, comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. There's going to be a sword in his mouth. I can't help but think of the word, the word of God, the word coming out of his mouth. And it will be the instrument by which he judges the nations. And every one of us will answer to God. 
This final verse tells us that. It tells us that no creature is hidden from his sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give account. You can't hide from God. Whether or not you believe in him doesn't change his existence. Whether or not you believe his promises doesn't make them false. Whether or not you choose to follow him doesn't change the fact that you will one day give an account to him. And that account you give will be based on how you received the message of God's word. Listen, church, God's word is alive. It is active, and it is actively carving you up and exposing the thoughts and intentions of your heart. And for some of you, that's a lot more scary than others. And for all of us, that's somewhat scary. So I ask, how will you respond? How will you respond to the fact that God, through his word, judges the thoughts and intentions of your heart? Well, based on what we've read here this morning and based on the the warnings of the Israelites who went before us, let me give you a couple thoughts on how I think we should respond to the living and active promises of God. First, become familiar with the promises of God that are found in his word. Become familiar with the promises of God and his word. And first and foremost, most significantly, the most important of all those promises is the one of salvation. The promise that we will only enter into God's eternal rest, into heaven, if we trust in the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. That is the most important promise. Start there. But once you believe that, also become a man or a woman of the whole of God's word. Where he not only gives us additional promises, but he reveals himself to us. We learn about his nature and his character and his purpose. Become a man or a woman of God's word. That's where we learn those promises. And then second, hold those promises tight. You've got to remember them. You've got to know them. You've got to meditate on them. Believe God for his promises and hold on to them tightly. Like a child who remembers that his mom promised him ice cream. Right? You can be weeks later. Mom, didn't you say that we could go get ice cream? Hold those promises so tight. The promises of God, hold them so tight that nothing will make you forget them. Don't allow your circumstances. Don't allow other people. Don't allow politics and government to intimidate you to the point of doubting God. That's what happened to the Israelites. They had more fear of man and circumstances than they had faith in God's promises. And they missed out on the good thing that God had for them. So let's not miss out on God's goodness for us. Let's fear the thought of missing out on the good thing God has for us. In this case, we're talking about rest. Let's rejoice in the timing of God's promise, that it's still available and that it has both eternal and immediate impact. And let's be diligent to trust in the promises of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we... Thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the promises that we find in your word. 
And God, I especially particularly want to thank you for that promise of rest, that promise of eternal rest, that we could one day rest with you. God, I pray for those who are here that have not trusted or believed the promise that we get to that rest through Jesus. And I pray that you would convict their heart, that your word would pierce their soul, that they would believe and trust in your promise of heaven, of salvation, of rest. And God, for all of us, for all of us, I pray that we would be men and women who, who worship and praise you for your word that is living and active. That we would embrace the fact that it pierces our soul and, and gets all the way to our heart. God, I pray that we would rest in you. I pray that we would rejoice in your promise and all of your promises. God, help us to be people who love you, who love your word, and who embrace your truth. And Father, we thank you and we praise you in the holy and precious and powerful name of Jesus. Amen.